This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Hello out there, we're on the air, it's hockey night tonight. Tension rolls, the whistle So, rolls, earlier today, the Massachusetts Conference... You should see my sports coat right now, I'm just saying. There's some Don Cherry <laughs> moments going on here. Well, earlier today, the Massachusetts Conference for Women held a panel, uh, The Big Life, Tailoring Your Ambition to Your Dreams. Uh, it was a discussion about, really, life on your own terms. Here to talk about how she did exactly that and how she did it in a male-dominated field. Danny Ryland, former ice hockey player, also founder and commissioner of the National Women's Hockey League, right here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women in Boston. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Yes, thank you for having me. Me. Corey and I have been excited about talking with you. Tell us about tell us about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a journey, but um, just the it started with an idea, um, the idea that you know women should be paid uh, to be professional hockey players, and um, so the idea started with one team in New York, and it kind of quickly grew to having four teams in the Northeast, and that's where we are today, and uh, we're in our, the middle of our third season, um, and uh, things are, are are looking bright for us. How tough was it though when you first said to somebody, "I'm going to do this"? Like, what did you get pushback, or did you get like folks like, "Yeah, I get this"? You know what? A lot of people were really shocked that it didn't exist already, mm. which I thought was a good signal yeah, from the is. market. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and everyone wanted to be as supportive as possible. You know, how, what can we do to help? This is a no-brainer. Like, let's make this happen. So, I mean, I think that everyone was um, definitely wanting to see it happen and wanted to, to pitch in however they could. What's the business model? Um, so uh, the league owns and operates all four of our franchises right now, um, but that is uh, something that we're we're still working through and, and looking to and maybe uh, start to to sell off some of our franchises in the, in the near future. Are you getting interest of people who want to own a team? Yes, um, actually, quite a lot of interest. Um, the, the very first day that we announced that we were going to exist um, in April 2015, um, we've received interest to purchase teams that had never even played one game before, um, and then also um, interest about expansion markets. Um, so it was kind of funny before we ever played our first game, people wanted us to expand. What, what, what about the, uh, the revenue sources for the, for the league outside of selling uh, ownership of teams? Yeah, so um, we've, we've had uh, we had seed investors our, our first year um, that believed in this as well, um, and then uh, a lot of organic revenue from sponsors, ticket sales, merchandise, and we're just starting to um, to leverage our or tap into our, our media revenue stream right now as well. Yeah, talk to us about that because I feel like it's an interesting time where some traditional sports that have really had, you know, great media contracts, whether it's football or so on and so forth. I think some people are starting to wonder, God, what's the future audiences for all of this, especially as people move online and you've got younger generations that maybe are not so sports crazy as maybe some of the older generations. Yeah, um, this offseason we actually signed a distribution deal with Twitter, um, and it's a global deal. So introducing the game and awareness around the game and really pulling together as many data points that prove that women's hockey is actually a fun sport to watch um, has been, um, it was a huge accomplishment for us this past offseason. So um, after a couple weekends of play, it's been a great partnership with Twitter so far. One of the things I love about the WNBA is that I see players who have the uh, who play like me, not like LeBron James. So I, I somehow, and I, I don't have Steph Curry's shot either. How does how is the women's hockey game? What, what how is the game different uh, for adults? I watch it with kids, and I you know I see I see greater skills, frankly, at a certain age. But I wonder how it's different for uh, uh, adult women playing the game. 
Yeah, actually, the brand of hockey that we have is our greatest asset. I mean, it's fast, it's physical, it's a really professional brand of hockey, but the women on the ice, they're so cerebral. They really see the play. You can watch the plays evolve. So any fan of the game um, or student of the game of hockey really enjoys our product. I'm also curious about, Corey and I have gone to the U.S. Open several times, and they have a really um, established network of working with kids and I guess kind of, you know, making sure that there is a future generation uh, in that sport specifically. And also, you know, getting out to communities where playing tennis um, isn't so easy, maybe. Maybe people don't have the means to send their kids to, to tennis camp and so on and so forth. What are you guys doing uh, along that line? Yeah, that's a huge part of of our league and what we believe in and our players they're so unbelievably generous with their time they're so um, committed to growing the game in each of their communities and you know if it wasn't for them I, I you know I, I'm not sure we would even have half the fan base that we do because they're so committed to making sure that the little girls that they go out and coach on the weekends are coming to their games that 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 later later that night so um, I you know my hat always goes off to the players in the league and how they're That's committed nice. to to growing the game but you're right I mean every young girl should be able to go to the rink and have the same exact dream as as her brother and that's been a, a huge part of our our messaging and stars you have some stars we do have some stars yes and um it, it's actually been great to develop new stars as well we uh, the olympians who've played in the league um, are definitely our, our biggest stars but um watching you know women continue to develop on the ice um and and be able to to bring um kind of have a social media presence and, and really develop their own fan base has been fun to watch so girls who want to do it just go out and do it yes yes i love it um across all not only not only hockey it in anything i agree yeah. i agree as as a mother of a daughter and i know corey's got two girls yeah we're, we're with you um danny thanks so much for finding time yes thank you for having me really appreciate it danny ryland she's founder and commissioner of the national women's hockey league on site with us at the massachusetts conference for women at the boston convention and exhibition center we see the creation of new businesses with a conscious and here to talk about how she built a business that uh, gives back is Holly Hurd, founder of VentureMom.com with us here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women. Nice to have you here. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you for having me. Tell it's us a little bit about what you're doing at VentureMoms.com. Uh, VentureMom.com. At VentureMom.com, I find women who've started their own business and trust me, it's not hard. <laughs> They're everywhere. They actually have been growing at... Um, they're up 30% since 2007. There are more than 10 million women-owned businesses in the country, and I've met some amazing women here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women. So I profile these women, and I share them in my blog with the rest of the world so that my, my goal is to empower every woman in America to start her own business so she can empower herself and her life and those around her. And you guys actually provide a storefront, right, for we, these individuals? We actually do. We make it very easy. In less than an hour, these women can have their product or their service in our e-commerce marketplace. It's very inexpensive. Um, so in an hour, they're up and running and their product or their service is out into the world. Is there a common theme that you start to see through a lot of these businesses that, that's different than uh, other businesses or male-owned businesses? Um, the common theme is that most of these women have no plans to start a business. They just sort of roll into it. 
it's usually something that other women envy in them. They'll say, oh, my God, you know, you can put a healthy meal together in no time. How do you do that? Tell me how to do that. Or, you know, I love the way that you have um, taught your children how to speak French. You should, how do you do that? Could you help, could you teach my children? So when you hear those kinds of compliments or people envy something that you do, there's a business there. And my goal is to say, get a little bit organized and put that out there and you're going to have a side gig or something to build a business around. It's funny that you say that. Um, There's a well-known jewelry maker and she now sells, I think she's got her own shop on Madison Avenue, selling at Bergdorf's and everything. Started a business, a jewelry business. I think I remember her telling me, I think it was, she was going through a separation and she and another woman, I think they just liked making jewelry and it was a way to make some money and they had kids at home and all of a sudden it became a much bigger deal. And it's just, it's just interesting. It's often out of an interest or, you know, You know, it's amazing. There's one woman, her son had um, ADD, so she organized his room. She did some Mm. research. She knew nothing about it and she found a way to organize the house to help him. I love that. So it spread through the neighborhood. So one night she's sitting at home, she gets a phone call and the and the friend says oh i heard about you through a friend can i pay you to come over and organize our house to house to help me mm-hmm. with my son who has add she put the phone to her chest she says to her husband oh my god somebody wants to pay me to do that that's not my business and the husband said well if they're going to pay you to do that it's your business now and so she became she wrote a book she shares her message and how she organized her home to help her son so and she's paid to speak and she's paid to help people Mm -hmm. so she's not only helping her family but she's giving back a knowledge that she learned just by chance love it um it's interesting too are you regionally focused or where are you doing this Oh, I profile women all over the country, all over the country, and they're everywhere. I thought it was also interesting what you said. You you gave us a statistic in terms of growth in women businesses, starting up businesses since 2007. I feel like that was in some ways a tipping point, turning point, what have you, because so many individuals, so many men lost their jobs after the financial crisis. And, you know, that there's kind of been a little bit of a switch where all of a sudden, you know, women became the, the, the main bread breadwinners, if you will. And I feel like a lot of women also started you know, businesses coming off of that crisis. Women are really good at multitasking. So we can raise our kids and we can run a business. And I do. Hallelujah. Were you hearing that? (laughs) I'm all for it. (laughs) And, you know, and I do think women had to help out. Men did lose their jobs and women had to help out. So whether they have a full-time job and they do something on the weekends or or remotely or at night, or whether it becomes their full-time gig that they do when their kids, you know, we have between nine and three when our kids are in school, we can start a business or whether, you know, it's something that you go big from the beginning. Um, I I teased before you started, Holly, um, we're talking with Holly Hurd, founder of VentureMom.com with us here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women in Boston. I said about creation of new businesses with a conscience. And that's part of what your mission is all about too, correct? Absolutely. And what I find is that the women, this is something they don't plan either. I met a woman who, she was she had a tech job and she wanted to adopt a dog. And when she went online, she was overwhelmed by the number of homeless dogs. Mm. So she wanted to give back. So she actually developed uh, collars and leashes using recyclable um, cork. And she called it Hoden, 
help out a dog in need. So it's an acronym. Mm -hmm. She got so busy with her business that she left her tech job, and that's her full-time job, is selling these um, made out of a sustainable, so she's helping a sustainable industry, the cork industry, and she gives money back to two charities, one on the West Coast, one on the East, that support homeless dogs. Do these companies and these businesses typically become profitable? Yes. It sounds like it when Absol- you say somebody's leaving their job. Absolutely. They absolutely do. And, you know, I, I cover everything from the woman who makes, you know, a few $500 a week doing something on the weekends to the woman who's got products in Whole Foods or a baby product in, in all the baby stores across the country or even bigger. Uh, that's that's fascinating. I, I wonder too, you know, in this in this sort of new era, this Me Too uh, moment, the the you know the Women's March in Washington, the the day after President Trump's inauguration, and and this sort of this woke uh, notion. I wonder if you you sense a different tone in what you're seeing and the people you're talking to. Do they, do they, do the uh, these founders say different things or see their role differently than they did even a year ago. You know, one of the commonalities, I've interviewed over 300 women, and one of the commonalities is that they're scared. But I think with what we're seeing in in the vernacular now is this is our time. Women are more more powerful than ever, and we are owning that power. And, And, you know, my message is we should own that power. And so I think along with that, Everyone's had a dream to start their own business. I think women today are feeling more empowered than ever to start a business. I'm listening to what you're saying, yet the statistics still bear out that women are still fighting for those senior executive positions. Uh, The CEOs, female CEOs of publicly held companies, uh, maybe I can think of a couple at this point. So I guess I wonder if the root of having a bigger say in the world of business is doing it on your own because it's still tough in the established industries. Just got about 30 seconds. You know, absolutely. I, 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 say, I hate to be you know, the, the, <laughs> no, the Bill, naysayer, but well, the reality. That's, that's always going to be there, but you can't stop fighting. Right. You've got to no, work to change it. And I think if you own your own business, nobody's the boss of you. You are the boss right. of you and you control your own destiny and, and you make the, your life better and the lives of those around you better by having your own business. I'm inspired. I like it. Holly Hurd, thank you. Thanks thank for stopping you. by. Holly Hurd is the founder of VentureMom.com on site at the Massachusetts Conference for Women here at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Why you sitting in your way? That's just that we might fall apart before too long. That's what it's all about, working it out in the workplace. Uh, Not so easy, uh, I think, in today's environment. There's a lot of division. uh, And mastering civility in the workplace, that actually is one of the many discussions that has gone on here at the Massachusetts uh, Conference for Women. (laughs) Listen up there, Mr. Johnson. You you better get ready to take some notes. Yeah, you Uh, better get ready. (laughs) Taking part of that conversation, Christine Porath. She's associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, sitting here patiently waiting for us to get going on site at the uh, Massachusetts Conference for Women. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. We're joking around, but it's not like I even feel it on the trains and the subways. Like, Everybody just seems angry and not willing to accommodate one another. 
the environment is really rough right now. Yeah, it is. It's at an all-time high with respect to incivility. So over the last couple decades, I've been studying how prevalent it is, particularly in workplaces. But we've seen an uptick about it. And unfortunately, people are complaining about it in society increasingly as well. When you talk about incivility, I love that word, incivility in the workplace, what's the most common types of incivility? Well, I think uh, emailing when someone's talking to you or texting during (laughs) meetings. (laughs) Corey, check, check on your list. Yeah. Uh, Not being attentive. Yeah, failing to be attentive or listening. You know, people complain about that uh, mostly. Uh, People interrupting you, uh, things like that. Well, to that. Um, he wasn't uh, going to interrupt us. Did you notice? <laughs> well, I'll interrupt. I got no problem interrupting. Um, uh, it, it, it is interesting to, to uh, in, in this sort of different world that we're in this year, this right now, than we were a year ago about this, these notions mm-hmm. of of um, uh, the roles of men and, and how they differ from women uh, yes. in the in the workplace right now, and our awareness of that uh, is heightened. Absolutely. So I think that there's a huge interest in how to build more inclusive workplaces and, you know, making people feel respected, most of all, so that uh, even if they're represented diversity wise, do they feel like they have a voice? You know, do they feel like they can contribute? And if not, you know, it doesn't matter so much if we have diversity. So really striving to build more inclusive, respectful workplaces. That's a crucial point, right? Because you can have, you can hit all the numbers and I've got, you know, how many women, how many African-Americans and so on and so forth or whatever. Um, and yet if you don't give them a, a voice in the company or a seat at the table, so what? Yeah. So it all comes down to that feeling of trust and respect, that idea of psychological safety, you know, and if people have it, that's where you see uh, people really thrive, teams thrive, organizations thrive. And so I think really striving for that, uh, leaders are paying more attention to it now. Um, what, talk to me about sort of how this has changed. And I, I'm especially interested about your, your mention of technology and the way that technology is sort of more intrusive, but I, I think that for, uh, you know, as people get more and more of this in their lives, and in, indeed younger people have it for their entirety of their lives, um, that they uh, have a different notion of attention span and, and, um, and uh, multitasking. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real struggle for most people. You know, I, I know there's an executive, John Gilboy, who actually put a cardboard box outside the conference room and made all of his executives drop their phones in it. They had no laptop meetings, no phones. And he said, you know, initially it was really hard as the box vibrated, people were (laughs) vibrating in their seats and really stressed out. But he said what was amazing was like within a month and a half, they slashed the meeting time in half uh, and it became a lot much more fun. And they took those habits into conversations and relationships outside of those meetings, which was really helpful. Um, With men and women, and the discussions that are going on right now. Do you anticipate, though, that there might be a backlash against women as a result? Men concerned about have women, you know, having one-on-one meetings with women because of concerns that they might be charged with something going forward. I certainly think that they'll be more mindful. I mean, I think they're getting that coaching, and so your mindfulness is good. Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's more positive, and you know, my sense is, yeah, there will be more open doors and more people attending meetings. So maybe some of the one-on-ones aren't as likely to happen, or 
Yeah. Uh, but I well, think we, that look, it's Look, we hear that in Silicon Valley that a lot of uh, venture capitalists are, are afraid to meet with women founders uh, in a one-on-one setting, yeah. let alone any meetings out, out of the office that used to take place all the time. And there's a suggestion that there could be even backlash against women founders who don't won't get the opportunity to take those meetings because these guys are so afraid of, of screwing up their business with acquisitions, accusations. Wow. Yeah, I, I hope that that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, I hope that, yeah, yeah that we, we find a, a way around that. I am curious, you mentioned like the emails and stuff like that that happens in the workforce. I mean, when you get, I'm assuming you consult or people, mm -hmm. you know, ask, is, is that, what's the biggest thing that people call you about? Well, I think inclusiveness is a really hot button right now, so that's big. I think I've even gotten called in though, how do you provide direct feedback equally to different genders or minorities and folks? So um, when I talk about civility, it's not about not giving negative feedback, it's the how, how to deliver it. And so- Do people still deliver it differently to men and women? They do. There's recent research that shows that uh, people apparently sugarcoat females' feedback about 15%. And when they ask females, do you want it that way? Or do you want the harsh, direct feedback? They say, absolutely, we want the feedback. We want to be able to develop at the same pace. And they find similar differences for minorities as well. Oh, my God. I want to talk with you longer because <laughs> there's so much stuff going on. Um, yeah. Come back at some point. Oh, great. to sugarcoat this for a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. We're just going to get right to the point. We are Enough already. You. Yeah, no problem. But Thanks Cor for but having Corey me. could use some help about like not emailing when uh, I'm just. Corey could just use some help. <laughs> Flat out. Christine, thank you. Christine Porath. She's associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, joining us right here on Bloomberg Radio. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's what we want to do. Make everybody a winner. And a big way to do that is closing the diversity gap. We've certainly made some strides, but a long way to go in many fields. I think many would argue that. Jackie Glenn, though, is tasked with bringing more diversity to Dell Technologies. She's vice president of global diversity and inclusion at Dell. She joins us here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. I feel like it's such a, a timely topic because uh, I feel like there's a lot of things going on, and I think awareness is being raised um, more so than in the past. Tell me about, though, Dell and diversity there. How diverse is Dell, first of all? Well, Dell is very diverse. We have, um, you know, not percentage-wise, I can't speak to that right now, but we have um, quite a few women in leadership roles. We have a few women that are presidents um, in different um, divisions. One of the women that are president is a woman by the name of Fidel. Fidel Maruso, when she's a president of our engineering division. Mm -hmm. um, we have um, three or four vice presidents here at, um, senior vice president here at the conference with us um, and who spoke, our vice president, um, Liz Matches, Elizabeth Matches, uh, SVP of marketing and branding. She was here and she was on the main stage introducing Viola Davis. And then we had our vice president um, for um, in customer support services, um, Carolyn Muse, and she was here here interviewing Bethany and then we have our senior vice president Bethany Frankel yes and then our senior vice president um, Chris Frazier um, she was here and she did a round table on your brand I guess what I want to know though is when it comes to diversity it's important at all levels and mm -hmm. and and I'm you know what's the push at Dell to make sure that there's because a lot of folks say you know get women get a diverse population at the higher levels and then it does trickle down. Now, we, we look at both levels. We look at, we have a program, for instance, that where we partner with historical black colleges and university and we bring the kids in from colleges like Morehouse, mm -hmm. Spelman, 
Howard University, North Carolina A&T, and we bring them in um, when they are just in their freshman year. And what we do is we have them intern with us every year in different division. The idea around that is to get them to sort of know Dell so that when they decide to make a decision, they will choose us. So right That's as they become a rising senior, yeah. we make them an offer. And so we are building the pipeline. We have quite a few um, young men and women of color that have joined Dell two to three years ago and are thriving at Dell. Uh, it's interesting too in, in in technology. I mean, you know, you guys, of course, are based Hi, primarily in Austin. Hello, but but you know, based in Austin, uh, it's it's not Silicon Valley, but it, but you know, certainly here in Silicon Valley, all kinds of companies uh, are wrestling with these issues of diversity. Uh, uh, that's it's you know palpable. Well, what was the question, Corey? I didn't well, so hear. I, was, I wonder how how you guys see it within the realm of technology, and and if that makes it particularly difficult or even easier. I don't know. Um, I, I think that, you know, I always like to think that all of us are in the same boat when it comes to, um, I look at the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math, mm. and we're all sort of fishing from the same pond and trying to get the same talent. And what you have to do as we do at Dell, we differentiate ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are there and, and you know, we have no work to do. We still have um, work to do, but we really look to build from the new to your career, the mid-career level, mm -hmm. and the I-level career. So we have different programs in place for women since we're at a women's conference. And one of our signature program, we partner with Simmons College right. to take our executive women through a development program. Because usually, studies have shown when you are an executive woman, sometimes you get stuck. So we work on that level. We also work on our mid-level women and our junior-level women. And we have program in place for all three. We're talking with Jackie Glenn, Vice President of Global Diversity and Inclusion at Dell EMC, on site with us at the Massachusetts Conference for Women here at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. The conversation that is going <laughs> on on a bigger level, thanks to some great reporting, um, when it comes to women in the workplace mm -hmm. and sexual harassment, how are you guys addressing that at Dell? Well, you know, we have a culture code at Dell that we um, strictly adhere to, and it really is really around respecting people, treating people the way you would like to be treated, and really valuing differences. And so we have um, our legal team, our HR team, that partner with all our leaders, and we have courses and modules that are always being put through around what is our code of conduct, what's integrity in the workplace. And Dell has been voted number one as the most integrity, com company with the most integrity. We have been number one in that field for quite some time. So we pay, we play, um, we put an eye price on that, and we're very keen on making sure that people understand what our values now, are. Now, hang on, Corey, because I've got to push back a little bit, because I think a lot of companies would come out and say, yep, we've got the modules, we've got the code, too, and yet problems persist. So I'm curious about what's the conversation now. Now, the conversation is we won't tolerate bad behavior, to be very blunt with you. So if people know that if anything happens that is not within our code of conduct, it will not be tolerated, and they'll be gone point black. So we don't tolerate it. Good. So who are, Sounds like who the are conversation the, though has yeah. gotten like a little bit stronger, right? I, I, I have to say, pushing back, that our conversation as a technology company has always been strong around that. I'm glad to hear that. Around that. And, and it continues to be stronger in this day and age. Yeah. 
Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, really quickly, what companies do you look at, peers that you look at, who you think do a, a really good job of this or are starting to do a good job of this? I just got about 30 seconds. Um, what company do I look at? Um, I really feel like we're all in the same boat and not to skirt around the issue. I think, you know, when I look at, you know, all the technology companies that are out there, like, you know, and Intel, Cisco, um, all of these other companies, I think we're all in the same boat, really trying to get our numbers to a certain point and do the work that we do. So I wouldn't say there's one that I would hold above all of us. I, I just couldn't. Thank you so much for finding You're time welcome. Us. Thank you for having me. Good luck with everything. Jackie Take Glenn, care. Vice President of Global Diversity and Inclusion at Dell EMC, on site here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women, right here in Boston. Back with That's us. great. I know. Back with us, a friend of mine and a friend of Bloomberg Radio, keynote speaker, or she did make some comments here at the Massachusetts uh, Conference for Women. Gloria Larson is president of Bentley University. Bentley is strategic partner of Bloomberg Radio. And so nice to have you back. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm so glad to be back at this event because it's just really wonderful. Women businesses, um, well-known speakers, just talking about various different uh, issues. You started this event 13 years ago. We did. And at the time, we thought, gosh, what if we could get a 1,000 women to attend a conference in Massachusetts that's built around um, women feeling more empowered, gaining more confidence, having great speakers. So we pulled off our first conference, and we had 2,000 women. And we thought, oh, my God, maybe we can keep growing this. But we had no idea that um, this would take on the proportions it has. 11,000 great women. Wow. And, Corey, at least 30 great guys today. <laughs> I think you say 11,000 great women and 30 really awful women. But they're here too. Um, no. Who is well? Who is there? What kind of what kind of great women are there? Or the awful ones? I don't know. No, 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 no. If the, everyone okay. who comes, it's all good. And it, all the by children the way, above average. I know. <laughs> it's like Wobegon. You know, but but honestly, it's a sampling of every sector in Massachusetts, every major company. State Street is our presenting sponsor. Dell has many women there. Um, go down the list. Raytheon, uh, uh, EMC, they're all here, and it's very special for that reason. But also women can sign up on their own to come. So we have young women in their first professional position, all the way up through women um, who have retired but maybe still sitting on corporate boards. And we have myriad speakers and myriad types of presentations throughout the day. I call it a spa day for professional women <laughs> because it's great it content. Is. It's yeah. great content. I always walk away feeling like I've got, um, I'm a little taller. My voice is a little louder and a right. little more confident. And I think everyone does that. And today was very special uh, to have Viola Davis on the main stage this morning. And then the truly remarkable Gloria Steinem interviewing Meryl Streep. Tell us, all right, you and I got to talk a little bit about that conversation. Tell us about that conversation. The conversation was like being in, um, uh, overhearing someone in their own living room, yeah. having a conversation about the past and how things have emerged over time. And they both seem to evidence a view that this is a very hopeful time, that what uh, women are seeing in the in the marketplace today and in the workplace and in their lives, that this is a moment of change and, that and, we can count on. We'll start with the backdrop of... Yes, the of, backdrop. With, with harassment, harassment and charges issues. and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And has the workplace really changed? Because think of it, uh, 
Gloria Steinem, when she started the movement back in the in the women's movement in the 1960s, we were hopeful then. Right. I was starting college in the late 60s and in the 70s going to law school, and we were all hopeful. And then there have been some reversals along the way. But today, she said something that really sticks with me. She said, hope is a plan, and we can all go forward now believing that if we continue to have this collective momentum and individually hold people accountable, hold men and others accountable for their conduct, um, we're going to be more powerful for this moment and things will change. And I will tell you, for the first time, we had some very powerful CEOs in the room, male mm-hmm. CEOs, the presidents of State Street, CEOs of State Street, of Bose, of a major Acadian asset management. These were men who self-selected to come and sit through this. And I remember talking a little bit to the Bose CEO, and he said, I will be back next year. This is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. And I think we're all realizing that having men as allies now is how we can together really make this movement last. But before we got started, you also said, you know, we've been at those points where we thought, okay, this is an inflection point for women in the workplace and something's going to be different. And then it didn't happen. Was it Gloria Stein that you said to me that said, this time it's different? She felt different. She was saying that. And so, and and really, I thought that that Meryl Streep said that too. Um, And all of our speakers sort of evidence this very hopeful view. And I think the fact that our timing this year is pitch perfect. I mean, think about it. The Time Magazine Persons of the Year, Mm -hmm. the Silence Breakers. I think there was such a feeling of just a group of women who are coming together feeling empowered and more confident than I've seen a group like this before. And to have the, the governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, there saying, this is a moment. This is a moment in time. Let's all go do this together. And just to tap Bloomberg for a moment, because we had the Bloomberg 50 list that just came out of the Bloomberg Business Week before time came out. And we, too, noted what we call the whistleblowers. Oh, you always scoop everyone and you I'm should. I'm just saying, how cool are we? <laughs> you how are. cool are we, Corey? <laughs> sure. Very cool. I, I love the people of Time Magazine, too. I, but I, I do think it, there is there is a notion there that there's that something's different uh, right now and that, that that you know, this sort of way too slow and, and, and hopefully, you know, not too steady march towards um, e- equality in the workplace is suddenly uh, uh, lurching ahead uh, this year. So I have my own anecdotal evidence, which is um, the corporate boards that I'm currently on. In both cases, one, we're already at, at parity with women on our board, Boston Private Bank. Uh, and then another board, Unum Group, a major you know, Fortune 200 company, has three women and two um, minority males on the board. And I've just heard our CEO, I'm on governance, our CEO and the chairman of the board both said, look, we're going to forge ahead really aggressively because we want to be the forward thinkers. We want to push the envelope. And we have to make sure that young women in their first positions are feeling that sense of power too. We can't just focus on the corner suite and in the boardroom. It has to be the front line. It's gotta be all the way, right? I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you. Gloria Larson, thank you so much, Gloria.
So great to talk to you guys today. Thank you for being part of this. We love it. It's, it's good to be back. Gloria Larson, president of Bentley University. Keep in mind, Bentley is a strategic partner of Bloomberg Radio. All right, we want to um, bring in our next guest because uh, I think it's a very relevant topic to so many uh, individuals and women in particular. And with a teenage daughter, um, I'm often thinking about this. I love this topic. It's the difference in confidence between men and women. Sometimes I think it's in our DNA, but uh, who actually knows? Here to talk about, though, the confidence divide between men and women is uh, Grace uh, Killalay, uh, she is Chief Executive Officer at GKC Group. It's a coaching and leadership consulting company, and she joins us on site at the Massachusetts Conference for Women here at the Convention Center. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, there is a confidence divide. Why is that, do you think? Because you've done a lot of speaking on this topic. Sure. There's a real disconnect, particularly for girls, and it's how we socialize men and women differently. Um, we know, I, I do a lot of work with the Girl Scouts, we know around the age of 11, girls start to lose confidence because their bodies are changing, society is giving them messages, and what we find is girls start to make themselves small. We socialize girls to be liked and to be nice, but we use different words to describe girls and boys, so girls very often will take a step back versus a step forward in their careers and in their lives, and it starts at a very young age. Um, we also are um, bombarded by social media messaging, not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough, and we disqualify differently than men do. But why is it that, and I've had this certainly, I think, applicable to me, and I'm a pretty nice person, but if I get demanding, it's like, well, she's demanding. Whereas with an, a man that does it, it's like, wow, look at him. He's really going after right. what he wants. Well, we call men assertive and we call women other words. Um, when when men lead, we call them coaches. When women lead, they, we call them bossy. And those are just old societal messages. Um, and what happens is it keeps women from pushing forward. Um, there's a lot of research out there that talks about when a woman is direct at work, she becomes aggressive versus being confident or assertive. So companies, organizations, and individuals have to look at the words we use to define men and women. But we hold women to a different standard, and women are supposed to be nice, we're supposed to be nurturing, we're supposed to be more maternal, and when we're not, when we're more direct, society kind of pushes back, is and that, that's cultural. Is that even true with the younger generation? It is less... Because I do find yes. like millennials a little bit more, they're out there, and they're going after what they want, for, you know, younger women. Yeah, I mean, there I are five generations in the workforce right now. I certainly think it is less impacting for some of young women, but I spoke to 20,000 people last year, mostly women. And I will tell you, young women, the internal voices, the comparing out, and I think a lot of social media pressure that I certainly didn't have growing up is impacting them differently. So I think the lane has gotten a little bit wider for women, mm. but I think we're still struggling with some of the old messaging. It's interesting too, um, you know. The, the the I mean, what you're saying isn't shocking to me, right? I mean, we know these things. Um, are there new approaches to dealing with that, you know, in the workplace and changing that? Things that may be different in the, in today's environment that wasn't the case even a year ago. So um, I think obviously the environment today is very, very. It's a very hot thing, right? Women in the workplace. I spent 35 years in human resources, and I was an SVP of a Fortune 30 company. Um, the stuff that's coming out now is the worst of the worst. It's the bullying. It's the it's the most negative and most obvious. I think your question is important because most of us live in the gray. 
things like having um, events at work that tend to exclude women. You know, your boss has a golf outing and maybe she doesn't golf, so she doesn't get access to leadership. Um, finding that the leader in the organization, where, by the way, 87% of women report to men, mm -hmm. so you may not get invited to the lunches. And my concern right now, in all candor, is that we're going to have a backlash. Yeah, we talked about this it's earlier absolutely, today. Absolutely, it's coming, but what I think what I think is happening is women have to take ownership as well. We have to put our voices in the room. My, my session that I just did. But you can put your, your voices in the room and people can ignore it. They can, they can ignore it. But the truth is, if we all stay silent, there's never a conversation. So asking mm -hmm. to be invited to the meeting, saying things like, I'd like to go to that conference. And if you are told no, what would it take for me to be included in that meeting? And right. asking the question and not assuming. I told a, a very quick story changed my career. I was not invited to go to a conference many years ago and all my male peers went. I went to my boss, ugly cry, made a scene, said you didn't include me because I was a woman. And he said, you're the only person on the team that didn't ask to come to the meeting. And I, it changed my life because what happened was I started to ask for I want, what I wanted and paying attention to what I get. There are big no's in companies and there are procedures, policies, and practices that are barriers for women. But we still have to do our part and make sure that if we're coming up against those barriers, we call them out. And we, we start to say, what would it take for me to get where I want to go? Uh, it's, it's intriguing. Uh, uh, it's intriguing because you got that message. Uh, what do you think it was that made you not have that message before that? I mean, do, do, do you now look back uh, and think, God, I stopped doing that at a certain point? Or did you just ask yeah, like, why didn't you, you ask? Yeah. Why didn't you ask? Because I, I'm a child of immigrant parents. I'm 59 years old. And my message was work hard, do good, and you'll get rewarded. So I kept my head down. I was just a good right. girl waiting for people to bring me the gold, right? Waiting for people to give me the promotion. And I didn't know. I had a mother that never worked outside of the home and had a third grade education. I think a lot of women are told, work hard and you'll be rewarded. And that's why I talk about you have to be competent and confident. People have to know you're out there. If you got a project over the finish line, it's okay to let people know you did great work and you did it on time and under budget. But we tell women that that's not okay. Is it the squeaky wheel? I think it's a little bit about the confident wheel. I, I okay. Listen, I think you can I don't be, like that term, but I, cause yeah. I feel like that's kind of annoying, but... Is it the squeaky wheel? I think there's an element bit. of speaking up for yourself and saying, you know what, I got this, or I'm happy to have been part of that project. There's a USC study that talks about we like people who can positively self-disclose. Men are more comfortable saying I'm good at something, and women think it sounds like bragging, so they don't do it. So be Muhammad Ali. If it ain't bragging, you can back. You know, if you can back it up, it ain't bragging. And put yourself out there and say I'm really proud of this work, and I'd like you to know what I'm doing. People actually like it, admire it, and promote when that happens. All right, guys. Everybody who's listening, just get ready because I'm telling you what I want. We're coming. <laughs> We're coming. <laughs> oh, look at the silence. I just got. TikTok. <laughs> Grace Killalay, uh, Chief Executive Officer at GKC Group. I feel inspired uh, on site here at the Massachusetts Conference for Women. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, everybody. This is Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Corey Johnson, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.